Our Shelves, a library podcast of the Haverford Township Free Library's Reference Departments. My name is Mary Bear Shannon. I'm a reference librarian here at HTFL, and welcome to our first ever podcast. I am joined with my reference colleagues, Amy Moskovitz, our reference manager, Kim Christopher, who is also a reference librarian, and Mandy Falwell, who is our reference and technology librarian. So welcome, everybody. We have been doing virtual programming really since the, the shutdown of the library in March of 2020. Um, much of our technology was elementary and old school, and so we are really excited that through a grant through the Pennsylvania Humanities Council CARES program, we've been able to acquire some new technology that's going to help us reach even more patrons through things like podcasts, and live streams and better recording like of our cooking program what's cooking with htfl that allows us to improve our technology and improve our delivery to our patrons so we are really excited to have this inaugural podcast to talk about some of the books that we've been reading in the last year we've been doing uh, facebook pre-recorded programs talking about the things that we have read Many of you know that we, for years and years and years, did Book Bites, where we actually gave every year kind of our highlights of the things that we read. But this program is going to help you to, to know what we're reading month to month. And we're really excited to talk about some of the books we've been exploring. So Kim, why don't you get started? This Again, this is my colleague, Kim Christopher, who is a reference librarian. Tell us what you've been reading just recently. Uh, well, the, what I've been reading recently is the graphic novel series Nailbiter. Uh, it's by Joshua Williamson and Mike Henderson. Why did you pick this particular graphic novel? Uh, well, it's sort of a complicated answer, I guess. But um, the story itself, it revolves around, well, a mystery about serial killers. And I personally don't like anything to do with serial killers. I'm not a fan of, like, Silence of the Lambs or anything else like that. But... What drew me to it was the authors proposed the idea of what if all the serial killers in the world were coming for one place. It's not due to like trauma, psychological problems, things of that sort of nature, just that they're being born in this one town called Buckaroo, Oregon, which is fictional in this case, but just that they were coming from this one place and trying to get to the bottom of that mystery is what drew me to it. And as well as the fact that it was based in Oregon where I lived for quite a while as well. Interesting. And Kim, are any of the serial killers based on actual serial killers? Not that I'm aware of. They all seem very out of this world where one serial killer is called the Whistler because he always whistles when he kills people. And the main character of this story, though, hence why it's called Nailbiter, he's sort of this Hannibal Lecter character who tortures and then eats his victim's <laughs> fingers. So again, not oh. sort of the thing I would read <laughs> usually, especially so gory because yeah he's literally eating his victim's fingers but just yeah <laughs> don't read before lunch <laughs> yeah, or bed apparently <laughs> yeah it, it, it can be pretty graphic but it's engrossing just to read about just getting to the bottom of this mystery even fictional just trying to find well we all love a good mystery and they throw all these sort of red herrings and you think oh so that's why they're coming from this town but then all of a sudden the red herring proves you're wrong you're like, you have to keep reading. Only ran for thirty issues very shortly, sadly, though it was popular enough. They made a sequel series and I read that too and 
obsessive read just in terms of getting to the bottom of the whole mystery. <laughs> is it that they're trying to get to the mystery of why the serial killers are coming from the town, or are they just trying to hunt the serial killers down? The mystery of why they're coming from this town, because initially it's just that the serial killers are all just random, you know, they're just from all over the place, all over from the world and everything, but then how it begins, at least, is after we're introduced to the serial killers, is that this NSA agent, Finch, he is an interrogator for like the FBI, law enforcement, everything, and his life is just in the pits. He's actually contemplating suicide. He's contacted by a former colleague of his who says he's gotten to the bottom of where all these serial killers are coming from. He's just one of those guys who likes puzzles, but he found out they're actually coming from Buckaroo, Oregon. And so he invites his friend to come over and investigate, and his friend goes over to investigate only to find his colleague has disappeared in investigating this mystery. And so he begins to hunt himself for where and why these serial killers are just coming from this one town. Oh, cool. So, Kim, what draws you to reading graphic novels? What is that you like about them? I would say everything, just from, like, the storytelling to the artwork in terms of just the beautiful nature of how they can use all these colors, lines. I've seen some where they even don't use lines, just use colors, and that's really a great one. I even just purchased one for my collections here at the library because they use nothing but colors to illustrate this historical moment in women's history, getting the votes in women's rights. Yeah, artwork, sometimes a story, like in the case of Nailbiter, I wasn't paying too much attention to the artwork, again, because it was gory, but uh, just the story, just how they're able to tell so much with graphic novels. Interesting. Um, do you find good quality graphic novels have art that basically enhances the story? Is that a thing? It can vary, in my personal opinion, because sometimes the artwork is what makes something really worth reading, like the one about the women's voting rights. But sometimes the narrative is just the thing that you're reading. I just recently read like this biography book, a uh, graphic novel, and I got so obsessed just reading the story, I wasn't looking at the art. I just read through the entire book just reading the narrative that was being told, and then I looked at the art. But it can vary, again, but... Yeah. How would you describe some of the artwork in Nailbiter if people are more geared towards the artwork than the story in a graphic novel? Well, very graphic because, again, it's about serial killers, but usually sometimes the series might try and lighten things up, you know, with uh, comical expressions in the characters, but in this one, the authors, Williams and Henderson, they just really stuck to making it as graphic as possible, so if you're really queasy about that sort of stuff. <laughs> Not something I would suggest, but the mystery, again, is just what keeps you reading it. And the other thing we wanted our listeners to know is that we have a brand new graphic novel book group that's coming up. November 3rd is their first meeting on Zoom. Kim will be leading the group. And can you tell us the first title that you all will be reading? Yes, uh, CQ, A Journey for Loneliness. It's a nonfiction graphic novel. Just explain how it's something that isn't talked about too much, but in 2030, they say it will be declared, just like what we're going through with COVID, a pandemic in regards to it will affect everybody. And they argue that a lot of people, as a result of loneliness, will likely not reach into their adulthood because the isolation of loneliness just leads to a lot of health complications and it's not an issue we talk about because we always assume that 
oh, being alone is fine. You know, you need isolation for yourself, but it's a balancing act where Rad K, the author, she does say that, yes, you do need some sort of loneliness. It's a universal feeling, but at the same time, you do need to have sort of like connections with other people in order to survive in the world. And a book group is a great way to have connection. <laughs> um, so the book is available at the reference desk. You can come by anytime we are open to pick up the book and register for a book group. So definitely give that a consider for uh, one of your book groups. So Mandy, why don't you tell us about what you've been reading? Okay, I read a fiction book that I found really interesting. It's called Hell of a Book by Jason Mott. The book can be found on Libby and Overdrive, though right now there is a little bit of a wait on it because it has a lot of holds. But it's also available in like a physical form from the library, and that's how I checked it out. So there are a couple of different storylines that take place in this book. The main overarching story that it starts with is the main character who they actually don't name uh, throughout the book. He writes a book called Hell of a Book. You actually never learn what it's about, really, throughout the entirety of the story. Um, he is a black author who basically escaped from his southern roots and made it big and decided that he would devote his time on his book tour to drinking, debauchery, and all kinds of self-indulgent behavior. Like he sleeps with married women and he gets knocked down, drag out drunk like every night and does while he's doing his interviews. This all takes place against the backdrop of Black Lives Matter. So when he's actually on his book tour, he hears about a young boy who gets killed by police. And a number of other characters, secondary characters throughout the whole book ask him how he feels about it repeatedly. Like the women he's sleeping with are like, so what do you think about it? His publicists are like, so what do you think about it? And he resents having to have to have an opinion. Uh, they point out to him that as somebody who is a prominent black person, that he needs to have an opinion. Whether or not he wants to be an example of his culture, they feel like he has no choice. Interesting. So it's his struggle with that. The other story is about a kid uh, named Soot. It's interesting that they name him, but not the other main character. But he is named Soot uh, because of his really dark skin. He grows up in the South and he's just a kid. And it's about how he struggles to, be, to grow up poor and being treated badly, even by other black kids because he's so dark. And it basically is he strives to disappear. His parents struggle between what to tell him about the world as he grows up. And it's really interesting because one of the main threads throughout the book is that the main character doesn't know what is real. He has a mental illness where he knows, he's fully aware that he sees things that aren't there. So one time going through his book tour, he goes into his limousine and he sees a very dark child there. They don't name who that dark child is, but they have a conversation throughout the whole book. The kid follows him on his book tour, and he has a conversation about whether the kid is actually real, or and, and the kid keeps asking him, he calls him the kid, um, and he keeps asking him like what his perspective is on things, about how he feels about things, about his past, things that the author doesn't want to discuss. Um, so it's, it's really cool. It's a bit complicated at the end. 
And I read it through a couple of times um, because with the main character's propensity for unreality, by the end of the book, you really don't know which version of the world is real and what is not. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. So it's set in the South. Does it, um, does it say much about modern life in the South? I'm, I'm speaking as someone who has Southern roots. What does, it, um, what does it say about modern life in the Southern United States? So it really doesn't address what it is like to be a white person in the South, but it does address a little bit of what it feels like to be a black person in the South and that they are like pulled over by the cops and harassed. He is, Soot is treated very badly because he is darker than his friends, even though, and his cousins. Um, even though they are also black, he's teased because he's darker and he's poor. And they tease him for that reason, even though they're poor too. Basically, he is surrounded by people who are angry, you know, angry that the system is failing them, angry that this is the reality that they have to live in and that this is the world they have to adjust to, even though they don't feel like it's fair. Uh, what was the writing style like? Because it sounds like it's trying to go between these two characters. It sounds like it would be a little confusing to follow the narrative. Was well, that the case? It does alternating chapters kind of things. So it starts out with Soot uh, at three years old, learning how to disappear. You know, he hides from his parents because they've told him it's important that he learn how to disappear. And so then they pretend they can't find him. And when they quote unquote find him, they buy him ice cream, you know, as a, as a prize for quote unquote disappearing, even though they saw him there the whole time. But he's a three-year-old, so he doesn't know. So as the book progresses, though, the chapters get shorter and they kind of blend together. And that's why I had to read it a couple of times because by the end of the book, they flow into each other so well that it's hard to tell where the mm. lines are. Yeah, it can usually be difficult sometimes when the narratives do that. You have to read it two times, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I saw recently that this book was on the long list for the 2021 National Book Award. Do you think that it's deserving of that honor? Yes. Yes, I do. I thought it was an incredible book. Not only was the language beautiful, because I love language. Um, I have a humanities background, and I like to write myself. So I love a book that has beautiful language, and this one does. This one also handles what could be a really hard topic in a really light way, uh, because the main character is really humorous and very lighthearted about life. So it's really interesting um, that it is a really deep, difficult subject, but he handles it very, very well. And it addresses what it's like I think in this world for a lot of people. And so I think for that reason, it's deserving of that honor. And can you get it on audiobook? Yeah. I wonder if it would uh, listen differently than it's read, you read it. Yeah, I wonder. They Even the, vo the different voices. Yeah. Interesting, okay. That's a good question. So from the author's debauchery to the debauchery of Malibu, <laughs> Amy, tell us about what you've been reading. Sure. So I read what was supposed to be the most sought-after book of the summer, um, based on what Booklist tells us, Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. 
Now, Taylor Jenkins Reid, as you might recognize the name, is the author of seven novels, including Daisy Jones and the Six and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, all of which are actually available in our uh, Book Club in a Bag. If you're not familiar with Book Club in a Bag, you can contact the library and ask any of our librarians. It is a great service where you can start your own book club with family and friends and neighbors. But Malibu Rising um, takes place in 1983, and it surrounds a party at the home of Nina Riva. And her party is one of the biggest events of the summer. And the book kind of leads up to this big party. And really, it almost goes hour by hour leading up to this big event that is supposed to be the hottest night of the summer at Nina Riva's home. Nina Riva is a surfer and a big star in California and nationwide, um, a model and just somebody that everybody wants to get near. And leading up to the party, we find out more and more about Nina's family, uh, her famous dad, Mick Riva, who is a legendary singer. We find out about her late mother. We find out about her siblings. Um, and we find out about some of the other party guests. And then as things get closer and closer to the party, we find out that some family secrets are going to be exposed that night. And so the party becomes um, really kind of a catalyst for all of these family secrets to kind of come out. There's a really interesting metaphor in the book about fire. And the book starts out talking about how Southern California and Malibu has a penchant for uh, burning uh, and wildfires and things burning down only to regrow. And it talks about how this party is almost like a wildfire in itself because all of these family secrets are going to be exposed. People are going to be learning the truth about uh, their relatives, things that they didn't know and how uh, that's going to spark some kind of flame. Well, and I wonder, uh, with the, the title, Malibu Rising, kind of invokes the image of the phoenix rising from the ashes. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that, I wonder if that was intentional. <laughs> and who that phoenix might be. That's right. right. So 1983, I was in high school. Um, and so my question to you is, what is your favorite 80s either cultural trend and what is your favorite 80s music group? Mm. Well, I was, I was very young in the 80s, so trying to think back to a cultural trend, I would say the 80s hair, <laughs> the big hair. I remember- Lots of big hair. I remember some of the hairstyles that my parents used to put me in. Um, the side ponytail <laughs> was a fun one. Um, rather uncomfortable but fun one and for the 80s music I think it doesn't get better than Prince. Gotcha all right and other questions? Well, I guess was it worthy of all the critical acclaim that it's been getting on all the reading lists? Uh, it was a it was on the New York Times bestseller list for a while um, I'm not sure if it has been knocked off by some of the other great novels that have come out this fall but I think that it is I know that several people that have also read it say that it was an easy read, it was a quick read, it was a fun read. But I think that as you look deeper into it, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of layers to it. You can talk about 
um, what society was like in the 80s that led up to these kind of wild parties, you know, these drug and alcohol and, and, and sex-filled parties that these people would have in Malibu. You can talk about the family structure of the Rivas. So it's, I think, a great not only book club read, but I, I think that the Taylor Jenkins read really has an interesting writing style, and I think that the book is definitely deserving of of the acclaim that it has gotten. It sounds like it would have been a really good beach read this summer. Definitely. Good yeah. beach read. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of family trauma, uh, <laughs> I am going to talk about what I've been reading. Um, recently, I read for a book group the, the most recent Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. It's by Oprah as well as Dr. Bruce Perry who she has been friends with for quite a while. Perry is a brain and trauma expert. He has years of work as a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist. He has experience working with traumatized individuals and helping them heal. And his neurosequential model is helping readers understand how the brain works and navigates trauma. Winfrey, of course, a uh, longtime talk show host, and now basically runs an entire media empire, but really is most known for her experience of interviewing people who've had traumatic experiences, and then also sharing her own personal experiences with trauma. The, the format of the, the book is really a Q&A or a conversation between Winfrey and Perry and their back-and-forth conversational format of this book makes it easy to follow and breaks down some of the most complex concepts of trauma's impact on the brain. I really think that there, there is a revolution going on with just the title itself, which is, What Happened to You? Whereas most of us, when we see someone who is acting out, engaging in behavior that we don't understand and maybe they don't understand either, Usually our question is, what's wrong with you? And just by that shift in the question as opposed to what's wrong with you, asking what happened to you. And I think here, you know, Winfrey shares stories from her own past and understanding. Um, and Dr. Perry focuses on the understanding of people, behavior, and their past. And really just this revolutionary shift to our approach around trauma and opening the door to resilience and healing in a proven, powerful way. Um, and I think that the most important thing is to, to read to the end of this book, because there is hope. We can talk about what happened to us. But to quote Dr. Perry, our major finding is that your history of relational health, your connectedness to family, community, and culture is more predictive of your mental health than your history of adversity. This is similar to findings of other researchers looking at the power of positive relationships on health. Connectedness has power to counterbalance adversity. And actually, kind of goes back to our featured book for our graphic novel group. Yeah. It's being connected that I think is really the hope. Um, and regardless of what happened to a person, it's who they then encounter that can help them heal as opposed to just looking at what happened to them. 
Um, I read this book, but in looking at some of the reviews on Goodreads, many really expressed that they loved listening to this book as an audiobook because it's read by both authors, so it really is like having a conversation. Um, many said it was like listening to a podcast. So I highly recommend this book. You can get it both here at the library as a book, as a book on CD. You can also get it on Libby as an audiobook. So this one I would highly recommend. What do you think the experience would be like, Mary, um, having read it, for somebody who may have gone through trauma versus somebody who doesn't consider themselves having gone through a trauma in their lives? You know, it's interesting because I think all of us experience trauma. And as someone said to me, it's either trauma with a big T or trauma with a little T. Mm, good point. So I think that we all experience different types of trauma. So I think many of us will recognize those different things, maybe not as horrific as some of the stories that are recounted, but just some of the other you know, smaller things like, like bullying, uh, like things that, that people kind of played down uh, in years past. But I think the other real benefit to reading this book is for any of us who either are in education or interact with youth or adults in terms of understanding what the long arm is of trauma in terms of how our relationships play out uh, and how we can help people too in our own jobs. So I think that they talk about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed therapy. And I think it's kind of become a buzzword, but I think it does represent a shift in the way that we interact and help people, whether it's in education or therapy or social work. I think even in policing, um, I think there is a, a shift underway, and I think it's positive. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like it has a real impact as a book, but you mentioned the audiobook, so do you think that would be a better way to experience this? I think I read it. Uh, I did find, because there was a lot to take in, I read it in spurts. So I would read a chapter and kind of put it down and think about it. I was actually reading it over my vacation, so I had quite a bit of time. And so I would put it down and kind of mull it over. I think that with the audiobook, um, I think you could also do it in spurts as well. But I think there is a real benefit to hearing that authors actually say their own words. I really think that that can be powerful too. And I think because it really is shaped as a, a conversation in the book, I think both are equally good. Yeah, and that was actually a little bit of my question too. Like, how accessible is it? Because I've read neurological books and things on trauma and things that have been really dense and difficult to connect with. Is this the same? Yeah, I mean, I think anything about, you know, the brain and neurology can be a little intimidating. I think that Dr. Perry does a really good job of not dumbing it down, but just making it accessible to all of us um, in terms of our own shared experience, but also, you know, not shying away with how does the brain really work in terms of experiences and what that actually does to the brain. And, and what really happens at, in those critical early years of brain development. You know, you hear the word resilience is also kind of a, a phrase that's battered around and used almost too freely. Um, but that idea of, oh, kids are resilient, but 
You know, is that really true? I mean, when you have certain experiences, how long lasting is that? And I think what, what Dr. Perry is saying is you can carry those traumas a very long time. I think the hope is who you end up encountering, who care about you. And I think Oprah Winfrey said in an interview I saw uh, a little while ago, you know, sometimes it's, it's a teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a coach or somebody, maybe not even in your own family, that can make all the difference, that, that shows uh, care, um, that can bring you through and help you with that resilience. Mm -hmm. So anyway, those are our books for All By Our Shelves. All of these books are available through the Delaware County Library System. Many of them are available through our digital services. If you have any issues with trying to get hold of these, you can always call their reference department and we can help you locate these books. So thank you for joining us for our first ever podcast, All By Our Shelves. We hope to uh, reach you next month for our next episode. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. Thank you.